Well, if you have your Bibles with you, I invite you to turn with me this morning once again to the Gospel of John, John chapter 5. If you're visiting with us, we primarily study through books of the Bible here at Ascension, just verse by verse, chapter by chapter, and this is our 14th week in our study of the Gospel of John, a study that we began way back in May earlier this summer. I'm not going to review all that we've gone over, but I'm just going to remind you that while all the gospel accounts of Jesus are different, different perspectives, different personalities coming out through Matthew, through Mark, through Luke, John's gospel stands apart from what we would call the synoptic gospels, those other three gospels. And what I mean by that is that more than all the others, John's gospel, his account of Jesus is, is more of a theological reflection on Jesus's life. Designed, of course, as we've talked about, his intent for the book is that you may believe in who he is and that by believing you may have life in his name. And so he's gone through these metaphorical and unpacked these concepts like Jesus is the word. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jesus is the light, the light who shone into the darkness. Jesus is the Lamb, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And most recently, Jesus is the living water, the one who we thirst for, whether we recognize it or not. And so far, though, We know there have been more. John doesn't record all of them. But so far, John has just recorded two signs that Jesus has given in his ministry to prove who he was, to display who he was. First, water to wine. And then last week, a long-distance healing where he didn't even have to look at the young boy or speak directly to him. Well, today we turn to the third sign in John's gospel, a sign that, again, we might see our Savior and ourselves. And so I invite you to stand with me for the reading of God's word. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. I'm going to read John chapter 5, verses 1 through 18. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem Now there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I am going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Get up, take up your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and he walked. Now that day was the Sabbath, so the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, The man who healed me, the man said to me, Take up your bed and walk. And they asked him, Who is this man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. 
Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My Father is working until now, and I am working. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his Father, making himself equal with God. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Please go ahead and be seated. Let's just jump right in. There's a lot to talk about in this passage. A lot probably swirling around in your head that you're wondering about what is going on there. Two truths to hang our thoughts on this morning as we walk through and seek to understand this passage. One is about our own hearts, and the other is about the character and the heart of Jesus. And the first truth is this. We all need to be made whole. We all need to be made whole. This man needed to walk. For 38 years, he had been an invalid. And yet he needed much more than just the ability to stand. We may be able to walk This morning, but we need more, just like this man. You see, I think as I studied this passage, I think that this man, in part, is a picture of us. We all need to be made whole. Now, I don't want to make too much of of that term. I don't know what exactly comes to your mind when you hear the word whole, probably a variety of things. When I speak of holiness this morning, I'm simply speaking of life as God intended, right? Living in fellowship with our Creator and in accordance with His design. Another word we might use is the word holiness. We need to be made whole. We need to be made holy, set apart for God. It's the kind of life that we won't fully be able to live in this life because of our sin but it's one that we ought to strive for. Let me show you what I mean. Verse 1, After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. This opening verse is about as vague as you can get in regards to the timing and the setting of this next scene. Right After this, John is basically saying, the next thing I want to tell you, we have no idea how much time has passed. A feast of the Jews. He doesn't tell us what feast. There could have been a number of feasts. There were a number of feasts, a number of annual gatherings in Jerusalem. This could have been any number of them. So the timing is apparently not relevant at all to the story. John is just moving on in his theological reflection of who Jesus is. And yet John does throw in these details about the city layout in Jerusalem. Did you notice that? Almost as if he really wants to make sure that this is grounded in real history. Or maybe he just wants to set the scene for us so well visually that we feel that we are there and we know what Jesus is about to walk into. Because what Jesus walks into, and of course I say that, but Jesus didn't just like stumble in there. This is Jesus intentionally going to this place. What Jesus walks into is a scene of intense brokenness. 
right? A scene that probably few of us have ever experienced firsthand. John says, a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, paralyzed. Why are they all here? Why are they in this place, by this pool, under these five colonnades? Well, they're here because they're looking to be healed. They all know they need to be healed. But more than that, they need to be made whole, which they probably don't realize, like this invalid of 38 years. They're there because they have turned to superstition. They have turned to a false religion, we might say. You see, when Jesus inquires about this man's need for healing, the man brings up that he is unable to get into the pool after it stirs, after it moves. What is reflected in that statement by the man is a popular belief in that time and in this place about the power of this pool, specifically when the water Move. Now you'll notice, if you have your Bibles with you on your lap, you'll notice in your copies of God's Word, there is no verse 4. It skips from verse 3 to verse 5. Do you see that? This is because verse 4 is down below in your Bibles. It's down at the bottom of the page if you have an ESV, if you have an NIV. And we're just going to pause for just a second and just talk for a minute about this issue. Because this can be troubling for some people, and I don't want it to be troubling, right? The Bible that you have in your hand is a copy, obviously. We don't have the original copies of these books. For, For instance, we don't have the original copy of the Gospel of John. Well, we have copies. We have hundreds and hundreds of copies that have been compiled, that have been compared to create what you have on your phone or in your lap in the Bible. And so as the Gospel of John, for instance, as that book, this account, was originally copied, it wasn't run through a Xerox machine, right? It was copied by a scribe. And then that scribe copied it again, and then it was handed off to a different scribe, and then it was moved to a different city. And so that's why we have literally hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of manuscripts of the Gospel of John. And they're almost all the same, except for the fact that when you get that many copies with that many human authors, as careful as they're going to be, there would be small discrepancies, right? So there would be small discrepancies, the vast majority of which were easily correctable, right? Well, this scribe left out a vowel, or this scribe left out a word, or he added a word that shouldn't have been there. But every once in a while, there's a bigger issue, right, than just a word. Most of these issues are not reflected in your English translations. Those decisions have already been made by the Greek scholars, in this case, because it's the New Testament, and by the Greek scholars who have compiled the New Testament. The translators have already made the decision based upon putting these manuscripts together of what the original said. But every once in a while, there'll be a larger issue. For instance, when we study the Gospel of Mark, the ending of Mark is one of those larger issues. 
John chapter 8, which we'll get to, and we studied years ago, is one of those larger stories about does it belong, does it not belong. These instances are few, and they never affect major doctrines, right? They never contradict what Jesus was about. But they do present these translators with a decision. Do we include this in the English translations or not? So, back to our passage, verse 4 This is a verse that is not well attested in the earliest of manuscripts. It's not found in the earliest of copies. It was found in later copies. And so because of that, it's likely that that verse was not part of John's original gospel. And yet there was enough uncertainty about it that the translators decided to put it in there so you would be able to see that there was some uncertainty. Let me read it. Those of you who don't have your Bibles in front of you may not be know what I'm talking about. Verse 4 says this. Some manuscripts insert, holy or in part, that's the introduction, waiting for the water for an angel of the Lord went down at a certain season into the pool and stirred the water. Whoever stepped in first after the stirring of the water was healed of whatever disease he had. That verse reflects a popular belief, though we don't believe it was originally part of John's account. But it is helpful to understand the context. So back to our story. We certainly don't want to deny the supernatural, right? After all, something supernatural is about to happen. But this idea of the water being stirred by an angel, we don't find this anywhere else in the Bible. And it simply doesn't align with the way God works, right? You've got a bunch of invalids and blind people, and God encourages them to run to a pool that they can't see or they can't get to and be first there. Does that sound like God? No. No, this was a local legend. This was superstition, right? And so what's going on? What what are people thinking? Well, the pool, if... You study ancient topography and history. The pool was fed by intermittent springs. And some of these springs were likely underground springs. And so the pool would move from time to time. It would bubble or it would rush as springs came in and fed and replenished the pool. And on top of that, some ancient sources report that this pool in Jerusalem was a reddish sort of color, reflecting some sort of medicinal property that may very well, when someone went in there, healed some kind of infection or some kind of scab. And so you can see how these things probably would have snowballed, right? The pool is moving. Someone went in there. They came out. They said they were healed. And then suddenly, everyone has to get in the pool, but you got to get in right after it stirs, right? So that's the context of what, what's going on here. I know that was a, a long excursus, but I felt like it was necessary to explain kind of what was happening here. So back to the story. The people are there because they need to be healed. And they're willing to do whatever it takes to wait as long as they need to wait. But ultimately, they're looking in the wrong place. To an impersonal, to a fictitious Savior. 
desperate for help, they turn to the inventions of man rather than to Yahweh, the God who can truly heal them. And it seems to me, going back to our point, that this describes us, <laughs> right? We all, uh, we have our magical religious inventions in the world, right? From time to time, these bubble up, right? Somebody saw Jesus in a piece of toast or something, and then you got to go touch the toast, or I don't know what they all are, but there are things like that that arise in our world from time to time. But more than that, in the West, right? We're Western Christians. We have these self-help strategies. We have these self-love gurus that are, are leading us to healing. Samaritan woman illustrated the pursuit of satisfaction in love, in the love of a man, multiple men. And this man here, all these people illustrate the pursuit of wholeness, of healing in superstitions of their own making, whatever they might be. You see, our passage reveals that this man didn't just need to be healed. He needed to be changed. He needed to be made whole. Notice Jesus' question to him in verse 6. Do you want to be healed? Why does Jesus ask that question? The man's been there for 38 years. Do you think he wants? Of course he wants to be healed. I think the end of our account helps answer why Jesus asked this question. Because there's something bigger going on here with this man. This man's illness wasn't innocent. It wasn't random. It was related to his spiritual condition. How do I know that? Jesus tells him in verse 14, sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. Now, what are you saying, Nate? I'm not saying that the Bible teaches that all illness is the result of sin. The Bible does not teach that. But there are instances in the Bible where sin has made us sick. And not just soul sick, but physically sick, right? Paul told the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians 11 that some of their illness that they were experiencing in their church body was a result of the way they were treating the Lord's Supper and the way they were taking the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. So this man's healing wasn't just about his health, his physical health. It was about his holiness. It wasn't just about his comfort. It was about his wholeness. You see, we may not be in the same physical predicament as this man, but we are in the same spiritual predicament. We are all looking to fill our lives and to make ourselves whole in all the wrong places. And just maybe, we don't want to be whole. We don't want to be holy. Augustine, the early church father, wrote an autobiographical work called The Confessions. Great book. And he writes of his inner struggle with sin expressed in this prayer that he prayed as a young man. Listen to this. He says, Grant me chastity and self-control, but please, not yet. In other words... He liked his sin, although he didn't, 
Right? Paul says a similar thing in Romans 7. I like my sin, though I don't. And yet my sin does reflect where I go to for comfort, etc. We all need to be made whole. To be who we were designed and created to be set apart for God, living and breathing according to His design. And in our sin, we can't do it ourselves, just like this invalid couldn't do it himself. But praise God, we're here because of the gospel. We're here because of Jesus. And that's the second truth, which is not as long as the first one. And it's this, God's work brings rest. It's God's work that brings us rest. This man was helpless. He was anxious in his long failed attempts to be made well, but he found mercy in Jesus. And did you notice? No pool. No faith. Didn't even know who Jesus was. Just undeserved grace. An invitation to the undeserving to rest because of what God's done. You see, I characterize it, very intentionally show that term, God's work brings us rest. I say that word rest because of what is bound up in this passage. Of what day this all occurs on. What day of the week this all occurs on, right? And the subsequent effect of this event on Jesus and his ministry. John tells us that this healing happened on the Sabbath. And the Sabbath principle goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 2, to the pattern of rest that Yahweh modeled for his people. In six days he created the heavens and the earth, and on the seventh day he rested. And then he codified that principle of rest on Mount Sinai as an ordinance for the nation of Israel, reflecting their God and setting themselves apart from the surrounding nation, they would do no work on the seventh day, on the Sabbath day. For generations and generations, Jews had practiced that. But by this time in the history of Israel, the man-made traditions and legalism had made the Sabbath into something it was never intended to be. For instance, rabbinic tradition had created 39 different classes of work that you needed to make sure you avoided. It wasn't simply rest from your labor, rest from your primary work. If you're a farmer, don't farm. If you're a carpenter, don't do carpentry. No, they added 39 different classes of work. So you couldn't travel more than a thousand yards on the Sabbath. Thousand and one, violation. You couldn't provide medical treatment on the Sabbath. We could go on and on. So when Jesus heals this man and tells the man to pick up his mat and walk, the Jews cry, foul. Think about that. How blind Spiritually blind can they be, choosing their rules over this man's restitution and restoration. A couple things I want you to see that John wants us to see. John wants us to see their callousness, 
their exaltation of their traditions over mercy and compassion. But John also wants us to see the acceleration of their disdain for Jesus. And not just that he would break their rules, but that he would make himself equal with the Father. Right? And that's ultimately what John wants us to see. Jesus is God, and he's stepping on toes here to show and to prove and to bring to a head the fact that he is God. And so when he says, get up and walk, in an instant the man is healed and he gets up and walk. All it took was his word. Jesus does what only God can do here. He reverses the effects of the fall. He speaks, he stirs, and he saves. God's work brings about rest. And not just that, but he's Lord of the Sabbath. He's Lord of every day. Because one of the things I want us to see, this is not a passage on the Sabbath. We'll talk about the Sabbath another time and how it relates to us and the first day of the week and the Lord's Day. We'll talk about that another time. But in the Old Testament, the Sabbath was not just a sign of rest, but it was a sign of redemption. So when the Lord reiterated and gave the rationale in Deuteronomy chapter 5 for the Sabbath, he says, do this because of the Lord's redemption in the Exodus. The Exodus was the Old Testament picture of the Lord's redemption. When he brought his children out from the land of slavery and brought them into a new and promised land. And now that Jesus has come on the scene, accomplishing salvation, bringing his own exodus, his work points to the rest that is to come, to that eternal rest that Jesus brings. In both instances, old and new, salvation is of God. So Jesus says in verse 17, my father is working until now and I am working Notice that Jesus' work with this man, Jesus is the initiator, Jesus is the pursuer. He goes back and finds this man. This man has done nothing. In contrast to the king's official last week, this man simply just, I mean, Jesus passed all those other people at the pool. He honed in on this man because he knew him. He placed his affection upon him. And he had a purpose for him to make him whole. He doesn't even know Jesus' name. Brothers and sisters, we have a Savior who heals, who saves, who makes us whole. Not the lovely, but the lost. Those are the people he has come for. We have a Savior who knows us and loves us still. Why would we go anywhere else? Why does my heart go to other places? I can hear Jesus' words. Do you want to be well? Do you want to be whole? Look to me. Listen to me. Recognize who I am. Rise and rest. That's what the gospel calls us to this morning. It's what the gospel calls us to every day. May God give us the grace. Let's pray. Father in heaven, 
We're so thankful for your word. We're so thankful for the ways that it penetrates our hearts, for the ways it shows us who we are and our need for you. Forgive us for seeking rest and wholeness in so many other places rather than in the one who gives it freely by his grace and by his mercy. Holy Spirit, take this word, do your work in the lives of your people for the glory of your name. In Jesus' name, amen.